0: Well, good morning. I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn to Exodus 26. Exodus 26. Exodus 26. So I, I've said repeatedly, I'll say it again, the goal of teaching Exodus is to show you how that scriptures are interconnected. Old Testament to New Testament, It's it's there's continuity. And I believe that today... Uh, We will see that very clearly. Today's message is going to be a little bit more heavy on teaching. We'll be covering more abstract and symbolism, but you'll see why that's important as we get into it. But the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, there's continuity. Uh, There is some discontinuity for obvious reasons. If you study it hard, you'll understand. But for the most part, it's continuity. And so we're going to look at the tabernacle today you'll stand with me we'll read the first six verses of exodus 26 moreover you shall make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of fine twined linen blue and purple scarlet yarns and you shall make them with the cherubim skillfully worked into them the length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits the breadth of each curtain four cubits all the curtains shall be the same size five curtains shall be coupled together and other five curtains shall be coupled together. And you shall make the loops uh, of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make the loops of the edge of the outermost curtain on the second set. Fifty loops you shall make in on the one curtain, fifty loops, you shall make on the edge of the curtain on the second, the loops shall be opposite one another, and you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains to one another with a class so that the tabernacle may be a single hole. I could keep reading. Some of you are going, uh-oh. Oh, brother, right? Uh, I never dreamed. I prayed this morning that, God, that the pastor would read this specific passage in church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I think you'll find it beneficial to see what where we're going with this. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... How that we can continue to study and continue to learn and continue to see more about you through your word. Now, Lord, we're into a little bit more technical section of Exodus 26. And so as we as we step back, Lord, and see the whole of Scripture, I pray that our understanding will be enlightened and we'll we'll find ourselves praising and glorifying you for the wonderful picture that we see in a tabernacle in the book of Exodus, in Christ's name, amen. Thank you so much. You know, I'm sure many of you have gotten to this place in your Bible reading and skimmed the section and moved on. Of course, the more spiritual of you, you dig in there and you read it and you don't understand what you read and you move on, Right? Well, Exodus 26 describes the building of the tabernacle itself. I want you to notice, first of all, that the the curtains of the tabernacle have cherubim woven into them. You remember me talking about them last week? Right here, the entrance to the holy. Now, this is the holy place. This is the most holy place or holy of holies, right? They were woven right into it. They protected the presence of God In Eden, they protected the tree of life and the presence of God. And I'll talk about that in a minute. The tabernacle reminded Israel of paradise lost. You see, the tabernacle was no ordinary building. It was, listen very carefully, the tabernacle of God. The tabernacle of God. It was a place where heaven touched earth. It was the first earthly residence for heaven's king. The Hebrew word for uh, tabernacle comes from the Hebrew word which means to dwell. And that is why it's so significant that you see in the New Testament, God is dwelling with his people. And in the Old Testament, God is dwelling with the people. So the tabernacle was the tent where God lived, and thus its construction revealed about his divine character. It was, it was a, it was a um, building that showed what was required for sinners to be a holy God. And this is why the plans are so important, and why to this day it deserves special study. It shows how us how we sinners can meet a holy God. Now what I want to start out with is showing you something that you've probably never seen before. There are many parable or parallels between Eden and the tabernacle. Did you know that? The whole point of God dwelling with them was the idea that they could return to Eden, where they could commune with God. This is a return to Eden. And so there are six parallels that you see in the creation account that you also see in the account of the building of the uh, tabernacle first of all there were seven speaking signs in the act of creation of both in the tabernacle the creation in the tabernacle creation account it is the lord spoke or the lord said to moses The lord spoke to moses the lord said to moses in in um, genesis 1 there are seven times when the bible says then god said secondly both were a place where god would dwell in the midst of his people i'll talk about that more in a little bit third both indicated the quality of the creation after a time of observing what was made moses would say that the tabernacle was a blessed place Where we find at the end of Genesis 1, God looked at it and said everything was what? Very good. Behold, it was very good, right? Fourth, both narratives ended with a focus on the Sabbath. Both of them. Fifth, both narratives had a fall that follows both of them. Where uh, people try to substitute creation for God. Adam and Eve, eating of the fruit. Aaron builds the golden calf, remember that? And then uh, sixth, both narratives have cherubim guarding the presence to God at the east entrance. But here in the tabernacle, the cherubim are welcoming people back into Eden through the blood of the atonement of the, uh, on the mercy seat. Isn't that fascinating? The pattern of the tabernacle is important because God not only told Moses to build it, he actually showed Moses the plans. We see this in Exodus twenty-five and verse number nine, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, and it's all its furniture. God showed it to Moses. Exodus twenty-five and verse number forty: See that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. So he's up on Mount Sinai, God's shown it to him. Exodus twenty-six thirty: You shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan. For it that you were shown on the mountain. So God didn't just write out the plans, He showed Moses the plans. He saw it ahead of time. Now, I'm going to say something. I believe that Moses saw the heavenly realities when he was shown these plans. And so the reason that we study the tabernacle today is not so that we can draw pictures or or build exact replicas, although those things are helpful we study the tabernacle because to learn the tabernacle is to know God. That's how important it is. The question is, and here's the big question, what did or what did the tabernacle mean? What did it mean? Why did God tell him to set up a tent? And why did he tell him to do it this specific way? here's the thesis of my sermon i never tell you that do i what my thesis is the main truth that god wanted his people to see was this that the tabernacle was a piece of heaven on earth think about this the ark of the covenant in the holy of holies represented god's throne didn't it it represents the heavenly realities. The figures on the cover of the, of the uh, mercy seat are cherubim. We know that in heaven, the cherubim are below the Father, right? He's above them. And we know that the Ark of the Covenant is called the footstool. The the, heavenly heaven, uh, the Holy of Holies is the dwelling of God. The, the winged creatures who stand guard in the throne room of heaven. There were more cherubim on the the curtains. Their images were skillfully woven into the walls and the veil. And so when the priest entered the Holy of Holies, God's sanctuary on earth, they caught a glimpse of heaven where God sits enthroned above the cherubim, you see. We know this. Hebrews 8.5 says about the tabernacle, they serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, see to it that you make everything according to the plan that was shown to you on the mountain. And this is where I believe that Moses was shown heavenly things. You got a glimpse. He knew exactly how to produce it because God showed it to him. And so as a cherubim, helped to show the tabernacle was an earthly building designed to teach heavenly realities. It's also a microcosm of the universe. The tabernacle is a microcosm of the universe. Inside was heaven. Outside in the courtyard represented earth. I don't have time to go into how you have the sea, just like you have seas on earth and all the other stuff. The inside the tabernacle is, represents heaven. The outside of the tabernacle, courtyard, represents earth. It's heaven and earth. They have come together. And God is at the center of all, reigning in glory. And the, the tabernacle, in turn, was the heart of Israel with the 12 tribes surrounding it. You get a glimpse a little bit of what heaven's going to be like, don't you? If the church is the Israel of God, the Bible says, you are the circumcised, then you have the idea of what heaven is going to look like. God is at the center of heaven. The tabernacle was the most important place in the world. It was a little bit of heaven on earth. And the point was not that somehow God could be contained in four walls of a tent. No, the tabernacle was set up like heaven, to show that God rules over both heaven and earth. The tabernacle and later the temple were models of Eden and represented spiritual realities in heaven. Let me say this one more time. This is very important. The tabernacle and later the temple were models of Eden which represented spiritual realities in heaven. I've already mentioned that at the entrance into the tabernacle, it's from the east. You enter the tabernacle from the east, right? Our guide in Israel, Ari Bar David, always says, the more west, the more holy. More west, more holy. You enter from the east. And just like the Garden of Eden, the tabernacle only has one entrance. There's only one way to get into the tabernacle, and the the priests guard it. There was only one way into the Garden of Eden. And initially, Adam was supposed to guard it as a a priest, but he failed. And so the cherubim then guarded the single entrance into the Garden of Eden. The further into the tabernacle you move, the closer you are to the presence of God, right? What's the furthest west in the tabernacle? The Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And you go through there, you get closer and closer to God. Well, guess what? The same is true of Eden, and so we're going we're to back way off, and we're going to look at all the Scripture, and I'm going to tie a whole bunch of Scripture together. We're going to look at a lot of Scripture, and I think I'm going to paint a picture that hopefully is, is a blessing to you. Genesis 2.10 says this, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So get the picture, Eden, the garden of Eden. Okay, We like to combine them together. It's not what the Bible says. The water flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and it divided and became four rivers. The garden is where Adam, the first priest, resided in the east of Eden. Water flowed out of Eden and watered the garden, and it watered the tree of life. And we know that from Revelation 21, which we'll get to. We're going to cover a lot of Bible today. You ready? Just as a river flowed from Eden, a river flows from the throne of God. The Bible says in Ezekiel, the eschatological temple of Ezekiel 47, then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, notice the words, and behold, he's surprised here. And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple, toward the east, for the temple faced east. And water was flowing from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. He's catching a little glimpse of the, of, of the future heavenly, and you see that water flowing. So the presence of God in the temple, and water is flowing out, right? Well, this vision is consummated in Revelation 22, where the angel showed me a river of of water of life brightest crystal and where is it flowing from the throne of god so think with me for just a minute go all the way back to genesis 2 7 water flowing from eden what was in eden or what was supposed to be in eden the throne of god you see that and so the temple is a microcosm of the universe also think about this God is always said to reside on a mountain. Did you know that Eden was a mountain? The Bible clearly says that. In Ezekiel, he says, you were talking about Satan here. He says, you were the anointed guardian cherub. So Satan is a cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of stones of fire you walked. He describes Eden as a mountain. God resides on the mountain. Well, we understand that because where did Moses have to go to be in the presence of God? He went up Mount Sinai and he went into the glory cloud by, by going up. And we find that, uh, that it's in a mountain. Now, where was the temple in Jerusalem? It's on a mountain, Mount Moriah right? And then we find that Revelation 21.10, and he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So once again, heaven uh, shows that God's on a mountain. So we've got the river imagery, we have the cherubs, we have the the mountain, and the tabernacle, and this is fascinating, the tabernacle and later the temple were portrayed as a garden similar to Eden. Look in the holy place. Now, this is, a, this is, a, this is not a picture, by the way. This is a, our, this is a drawing. But, but we know what was on the inside. Notice there's palm trees. There's, um, there's the lampstands, what we talked about last week. Pomegranates and more palm leaves on the pillars. And so the inside... It was a garden. There were animals carved and all sorts of things. It was, it was a garden-like inside the temple, Solomon's temple. And so there were tapestries and carvings, palm trees, pomegranates, lampstands representing a tree of life. And by the time we get to Revelation 22, Eden no longer looks like a garden. Eden now is a garden city in Revelation 22. There's a street. There's a tree of life. There's a river, and it says servants from many nations are coming in and out. You see, it went from a garden in Genesis 1 and 2 to a garden city in Revelation 21 and 22. Do you see the continuity from beginning to end? You see a description, and in the middle, you've got uh, the tabernacle and the temple. Now, all of these vivid pictures, they serve a purpose. What purpose do they serve? they point to a person who is the river of life, who is the tree of life, who is the light of the world. You see? It points to Jesus Christ. The person Jesus is the true tabernacle of God. He is the sacred space where heaven comes down to earth so that we can touch the face of God. Unlike the first tabernacle, he's not made of silver and gold, linen and wool, skins and hides stretched across wooden frames. Rather, he's made of flesh and blood, bone and sinew. Uh, to, and, and all of this joined to the divine nature because despite his humanity, Jesus retains all of his deity as the very Son of God. Think about this. Do Anybody, anybody here know what the last verse of the Hebrew Old Testament is. It's striking. The last verse of the Hebrew Old Testament is the commissioning of the building of a temple. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Judah. That's the last verse of the Hebrew Old Testament. Now, the Jews went back. They built Zerubbabel's temple. And if you remember, at the commissioning of the the tabernacle, we'll see this in Exodus. It's the very last sermon that we cover. The glory of the Lord came down to the tabernacle. We see when Solomon built the temple and they commissioned the temple, the glory of the Lord came down. But guess what? No glory cloud came to Zerubbabel's temple. Did you know that? And Jews knew it. And they wondered what was going on. Well, I'll tell you what was going on. 400 years later, roughly, one came who said this, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. The glory of God now rests upon him. And so they see the very last, Verse of the Old Testament, the commissioning of the building of the temple, and then you have the one who is the true temple, who comes down to earth. You have the Son of Man, uh, John two, who says he says this: "Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up." He tells his disciples in Matthew twenty one that he is the cornerstone of Matthew or of, of Psalm one eighteen, verse number twenty two. He's the cornerstone that people are going to fall on and be broken. And so Christ began to teach that a new temple is being built. The Jewish temple on Mount Moriah is no longer needed because he is the true temple. When he was crucified, his body was torn by the hard nails of our hatred and sin. And as Jesus clung on the cro- or hung on the cross, suffering, and dying to pay the price for our sin, something miraculous happened in the temple in Jerusalem. You know what it was? The curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place was torn. It was written in pieces by the almighty power of God. The Bible says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This wasn't a bed sheet. No human being could do this. The veil, this was an act of God. The veil of of the Zerubbabel's temple, you know it as Herod's temple, was 15 feet high and 4 inches thick with layer after layer after layer. It was no human being could do it. God tore it. It was torn by the almighty hand of God. Something monumental had happened in human history. The veil that for more than a millennium had separated God from his people Uh, From God's presence, it had parted. Now the way was open for the priests and indeed the whole human race to come to God in the most holy place. Amen? And at that time, don't miss this, at that time, Mount Moriah was desolate. Worship at that temple was now an abomination to God. Why? Because worship being offered there was not in spirit and in truth, which is what Jesus said was true worship, right? It was no longer in spirit and in truth. It was the worship offered in that temple after the point of Jesus dying on the cross was offered in rejection of God. Ultimately, it was such an abomination that God destroyed that temple by the hands of the Romans and it became desolate. Amazing, isn't it? Well, what replaced it? What replaced it? Well, true worshipers no longer need to come to a physical temple because now the temple cornerstone has been laid, built on a foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Jesus is now the cornerstone of the eternal true temple the one that all the tabernacle and the temple had been pointing to all along he's the cornerstone for what a holy temple for the lord ephesians 2 20 and 21 says why because since christ is the true temple anyone who is alive in christ has christ dwelling in them by the holy spirit don't they the Holy Spirit is dwelling in them. So Christ is a new temple. That means now we are part of the temple. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 3, you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Dear believer, if you are in Jesus Christ, you are the temple of God. Wonderful teaching, isn't it? Because since Christ died, he is now in our midst. And Paul used that same um, analogy to, he employed it to describe the church. He said this in 2 Corinthians 6.16. What agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And God said, I will make my, here's that word, dwelling among them, a walk among them and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He's walking among us just like he walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. Isn't that wonderful? I want you to notice something else. The language is temple of God, temple of the living God. That is very important. That distinguishes it from any other Temple. Peter continues the temple imagery by telling his recipients that Christ is a living cornerstone, and that you yourselves are living stones being built up into a spiritual house. And of course, we saw last week that the book of Hebrews calls Christ the true tabernacle, all the way through the, the, the Old Testament or New Testament. The, the spiritual significance of the temple is being seen. There is no longer a need for a physical tabernacle or temple because the true temple is here, isn't it? The sum of the whole New Testament teaches that there is one true tabernacle, and his, his name is Jesus Christ, and he is building his church into a new eternal temple. And this is consistent all the way through the New Testament. Now, why do I go there? We're going to see in just a, a, a few minutes, but I want to help you. With that plain teaching means now we can take the more difficult passages and interpret them by the plain teaching of Scripture, which is proper hermeneutics, right? Hermeneutics means interpretation, by the way. Okay? So let's take a difficult passage. 2 Thessalonians two four talks about the man of lawlessness. Paul describes him as one who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat where? In the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, Paul has already told us multiple times what the temple of God is. What is it? It's the church. The plain teaching of the New Testament explains more difficult passages. It's the same Throughout, the temple of God is the church, repeatedly said in the New Testament. The consistent plain teaching of the New Testament can help us in Revelation as well. Revelation, remember this, John's gospel, more than any other gospel, uses temple imagery to describe Jesus Christ. A temple from beginning to end, speaking of Jesus Christ. And so it's no surprise then that the temple imagery continues in the book of Revelation. For example, in Revelation 1, in the inaugural vision, John saw seven golden lampstands, menorahs, seven golden menorahs. And in verse number 12, where he sees these, he also sees Jesus in the midst of them. Now, doesn't that make perfect sense? And Jesus himself interpreted this vision in chapter 1 and verse number 20. And here's what Jesus said. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what is the meaning of lampstand in the book of Revelation? It's the church. Jesus himself said it, right? It's the menorah. So um, already in the first chapter, we begin to understand John's view of the temple. Consider the promise that Jesus made in Revelation 3 and verse number 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a temp- pillar in the temple of my God. There's the temple of God again, right? The temple of God, Revelation three twelve. 12. So, so Jesus is going to take a living, animated person and he's going to turn him into an inanimate stone in a temple. Is that what that means? No. What he is saying is, I am going to give this person a permanent place in my eternal temple, the church, made without hands forever and ever. The one who conquers, the one who endures to the end, will have a permanent place in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. Wonderful promise. Revelation is a description of spiritual realities, but it's highly symbolic. It's called apocalyptic literature. It describes these realities in highly figurative language. And so when we come to figurative books, we use the plain teaching of the rest of scriptures to interpret. Why? Because we draw the meanings from the Old Testament and the New Testament and their spiritual fulfillment. Plain teaching of Scripture teaches how to interpret the book of Revelation. So let's consider one of the hardest verses in Revelation and see if we can apply this principle to it and see if this makes sense. Revelation 11, this is one of the most difficult passages to interpret, and he says this, John said, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and was told, Rise and measure what? The temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Now, we know from the Old Testament that the tabernacle and the temple and the altar and the way they worship was a looking forward to spiritual realities. And we also know already from all of the New Testament, and John himself said it in Revelation 3 that the temple of God is what? The church. Again, we have this term, temple of God, that we have seen in a multiple, multiple New Testament books. Notice something else in uh, later on. God grants two witnesses authority. Two witnesses authority. Now, where have you heard those words before? Matthew 28. All authority is given to me, and you shall be witnesses. The authority of Jesus is given to his church, right? The church was being granted authority to witness, but it gets better. John interprets the identity of the two witnesses. In verse number four, he says, they are the two lampstands before the Lord of the earth. Now, what are lampstands according to Revelation 1? The church. And so you use the Easier passages where the plain teaching is being made to interpret highly symbolic passages, highly figurative passages in, in um, other passages of Scripture. We have, we have this going on. Finally, we end the book of Revelation. We see this glorious statement. He says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And we can read about the glorious ending You see, I have a question. Do you see the church in terms of such glory? The the, the tabernacle was small, and it wasn't very impressive from the outside. But it was full inside of beautiful and ornate and precious furniture. And the same is true with the church. Be honest. Are you very impressed with the people sitting around you? (laughs) No, I know that guy. (laughs) He's not very impressive at all if you only knew about him. The church is the same way from the outside. Very few of us are very impressive from the outside. But we are pillars in the church of the living God. We are living stones Connected to the cornerstone, our adorning, while the tabernacle's adorning is on the inside, so is ours. Our adorning is on internal. We as we feed on the riches of Jesus Christ in his word and his preaching and teaching, as we grow through the awesome power of the Holy Spirit, we are slowly, oh so slowly, being transformed into the glorious image of Jesus Christ. That's why we don't need an ornate building because the ornateness comes on the inside. That's why we don't need images of God, because we are the image of God. That's why we don't need expensive furniture, except in the pastor's office. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we don't need expensive furniture because the glory is, is, and the, the, the beauty is on the inside of who you are in Jesus Christ. And so the glory of Christ shines through We no longer give ourselves to sensuality and greed and impurity. Instead, we are renewed through the Spirit because we are created after the right right, likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. We consider how to live carefully, being wise. We make the best use of time because the days are evil. We remember that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and causing powers of darkness and spiritual forces of evil. And the only way to survive, the only way to survive is to fasten on the belt of truth. And that comes as we read the Word of God. And we have to remind ourselves of spiritual truth And we have to speak spiritual truth to other people's lives, don't we? Because we need one another, just like coals in a fire need one another. We proclaim the gospel of peace. But that proclamation is a proclamation that the evil one absolutely hates. And so therefore, because he hates it, we have to take on the shield of faith. Because the fight will be intense. It's going to feel like we're losing And so we pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication and we stay alert and we pray for one another and the saints in diverse parts of the world who are enduring severe trials. And we do all all of this knowing that if the tent, our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God not made with hands, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, for in this tent we groan, and we, but we long. Don't you long to put on your heavenly dwelling? Praise be to God. One day faith will be sight. One day he will come, and he will come quickly. And he is coming in clouds, the clouds of glory, the same kind of clouds of glory that Mount Sinai was covered in. He's coming in those kind of clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And all the citizens of heaven will rejoice with great joy when he comes. And we will join the great multitude singing, Hallelujah, forever our God reigns. We will join him at the marriage of the lamb because he went ahead and he made ready for us and he made us fit and gave us robes of righteousness so forever and ever and ever we can have the the marriage supper of the lamb because it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure and bright. Isn't that what Revelation tells us? And so I leave you with the parting words of the apostle John, amen, come Lord Jesus and don't forget this you are the stones living stones in the temple of God never to be destroyed forever and ever in the presence of God and it doesn't feel like it now and and life is hard sometimes now and every now and then God blesses you with a glimpse of glory like you've never seen before and we have joy at that but dear believer you are the temple of God the greater tabernacle and God is in our midst he's dwelling with us he's walking with us and he loves us and we have his power we have all these precious promises and so lord come quickly lord i thank you for the book of revelation or i'm sorry the book of exodus and revelation as well lord but the book of exodus how we can see from beginning to end that the, the Bible is one whole. It describes beautiful heavenly realities. It describes things that are indescribable. And if we study and we look and we compare Scripture with Scripture, we can have a greater understanding of you and your glory, greater understanding of our place in your house. And Lord, I pray that today just what was being spoken will will will. Uh, create a thirst in people's hearts to know you in your glory to a greater and ever increasing degree in his name we pray amen